Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Um, we're here on Word and Testimony and we're jumping back in to the In His Image series. Uh, after we've run this course for the last little while on Jesus and how Jesus shows us the image of the invisible God, we're, we're now sort of switching gears to talk about human characters in the Bible that demonstrate to us some aspect of what it is to be in the image. And that's the, the run for the next little while. Uh, to get us kicked off, we're actually going to look at Esther and the example that she gives us uh, in really broad strokes today. And then we're going to dive into some specific pieces of um, the image and some correlations that Esther has with some other Old Testament texts that will highlight for us uh, what it looks like to be in his image, um, using Esther as a first example of that. And then we're going to run some other Old Testament and New Testament character examples and, and process this through. But um, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tells us that uh, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And he said, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God made man, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Exodus 19, verse 6 especially, and 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, build off of the ideas here in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And the ideas in the connected texts, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. The Exodus 19 and 1 Peter 2 texts start to build on these ideas from the early chapters of Genesis by identifying the people of God as a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And this royal priesthood idea is the idea that we're sort of going to sit with today as we talk this out. Genesis 1 and 2 gives us a description of humanity as the image of God. And in the storyline of Genesis 2, humanity is and acts as royal priests, sort of ruling class, and also as priests, people who are intermediaries. They stand between God's creation and God and, uh, and, and the other way around. And so Genesis 1 and 2 gives us an image of humanity as royal priests in the garden being royal priests for all of God's good creation. Humanity is this intermediary through whom God can be among his creation and through whom the creation is present to the one who created it, the Lord. So this idea of ruling over creation with God from Genesis 1 and walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day, Genesis 3 verse 8, sort of create these categories for us. In addition, if we look at the structure of um, the Genesis 1 story and we consider the way the world is described in the Genesis 2 story, there's there's a lot of parallels to the way that the temple or the tabernacle is going to be set up later on in the scripture. And so if we if we consider the framework for Genesis 1 and 2 and we consider the structure of the temple or the tabernacle, what we end up with is is God making a kind of temple space where he lives with his creation and his creation lives with him. And humanity then serves in that space as a kind of king and priest, queen and priestess combo. Well, 
If that's the case, then, humanity is a royal priesthood. We're intermediaries for God and his creation. We bring creation to God and God to his creation. And as we stand in between God and his good world, we relate God to his creation and the creation around us back to our creator. Now, sin and death, Genesis chapter 3, ruin a good deal of this role that we have in God's created order and in the design of what it is to be and function as human beings. Being the image of God means, in some sense, it means being one who rules with God, rightly partnered and rightly related to him, and one who serves as a priest, bringing covenant with God to the rest of his creation and relating the rest of that creation back to God in that covenant. Humanity is supposed to stand in this middle ground, And as it does, it has this really noble identity as the image of God and a really noble task. Relate God to his creation. Relate God's creation back to God. What's really interesting to me is that if we look at Esther in the Esther story, she serves as an incredible example of what this kind of royal priesthood might actually look like when humanity does it well. We get introduced to Esther the character in the book of Esther, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and we learn that she's a Benjaminite and from the same family as that of King Saul, who's also a Benjaminite from the family of Kish. Esther is a Benjaminite, and in her family line is this family of Kish. The only other Kish mentioned that's a Benjaminite in Scripture, and maybe the only other Kish mentioned in all of Scripture, is Saul's father. So it seems that she descends from a royal line, but now finds herself in exile in Persia in what will become a time of crisis for her people. She's crowned queen to Ahasuerus in Esther 2.17 and is now his queen. In Genesis 2, Adam needs a helper. The word is Azer in Hebrew, and God provided him with Eve. In Esther 1 and 2, Ahasuerus needs a queen, and God, although he's never mentioned, is definitely at work, sovereignly, provides Ahasuerus with Esther, his queen, who will uphold justice and righteousness for her people and for the kingdom. Esther intercedes for her people with the king and confronts this wicked Haman, Esther 7 verse 6. But it's interesting to me, Esther belongs to the family that brought us Saul, and Haman is described as an Agagite. Now, there's not a people group mentioned in the entirety of Scripture, except for right here with Haman as Agagites. And so the connection that most scholars make, and that I think is most apparent, is the connection to King Agag from the Samuel scroll. Now, Saul was commanded to conquer King Agag and his kingdom and execute the king wiping out everything in that town because of its wickedness. Now, Saul fails to follow the instructions of God, and Samuel tells him that for the reasons of failing to follow the instructions God gave him, the kingdom is going to be ripped from his family and given to another, to David, right? And this is 1 Samuel 15 and 16, the kingdom taken from Saul in 15 and given to David in 16. Saul failed to faithfully listen to the voice of the Lord 
through Samuel. He failed to follow God's commands. He failed to obey God's instructions. This is pretty characteristic of of Saul in in 1 Samuel, especially leading up to chapter 15. Esther, on the other hand, listens to the instructions of the Lord through Mordecai. She prays, she takes courage, she gathers wisdom and help around her, and then she acts uprightly according to the instructions she received and in step with that wisdom she's tapped into. Saul fails to eliminate Agag and his family. But Esther succeeded in identifying the enemy, Haman. And the king had Haman, the Agagite, hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. That's Esther 7, 7 through 10. Saul's failure ironically gives Esther a kind of redemption opportunity, and she succeeds in redeeming Saul's failure. Both Esther and Saul are Benjaminite royals, but Esther's faithful as a royal intercessor. It's a very priestly function. A queen priestess, she sought the Lord in prayer, fasting, and she then delivered her people through her wisdom and righteousness. She's a royal intermediary. Genesis 1 and 2 identifies human beings as royal priests called to rule over God's creation, to intercede for that good creation, to be people that stand in between God's creation and God himself. And so called to stand in between God and his good creation, Esther does just that, and she listens to the voice of Mordecai. Where Saul didn't listen to the voice of Samuel, she prays and fasts, seeking wisdom, and then acts with it where Saul doesn't seem to do that. She acts with integrity and bravery for the sake of her people. Saul is swayed by the voice of the people. She's a queen standing and acting in between her people and the Lord. Priestess. She's pursuing the good, wise, and right thing through Mordecai's counsel and the support of her community, which she directs calls for them to pray and fast with her. See, Esther ignores the temptation to remain silent or brush off the severity of the issue. And so she succeeds where Eve, who listened to the temptation of the serpent, and Saul, who disobeyed the command of God, both failed. Esther lived in step with the identity and the purpose of humanity. To be the image and likeness of God and to be a royal priestess. As such, she takes up the responsibility and the dignity of being made in the image and likeness of God. And she did like God would have done. In this way, she passed the tests of temptation and disobedience. Eve in temptation, Saul in disobedience. And she walks in step with her identity as this royal priestess, as a human being made in the image of her creator. Where Eve was called to be Adam's helper and failed by helping him to fall into sin at the tree, Esther is a faithful helper to justice and righteousness for her husband, the king. She upholds the good and right and inspires her king to do the same. She redeems the failure of past characters in her story, be it Eve or Saul. And 
And in her context, she demonstrates for us what it means to be the image of God. Esther shows us pretty clearly what a a woman fully living as the image and likeness of God looks like. She's a woman of deep relationship to the Lord, humble and willing to listen to wise counsel, and full of the fortitude to act for justice and righteousness with wisdom and boldness. This is a good start for us. Until next time on the podcast, I hope you all have a good day today.